Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. If you would, I'm, you know what, I said you may be seated. Would you guys stand with me as we read today's passage? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and be looking at verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, and of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is your word that you have spoken. This is your word that you have given to us. And As we are often reminded, we are um, like grass. We are here for a season. We have a season of beauty, and like your word says, we wither. We're like a vapor, and our time on earth is short. But your word remains. Your word remains, and your word is meant to lead us to eternal life. Your word is meant to lead us to you through Jesus Christ. So we ask this morning that you would help us to receive all that you have for us, all that you have for us, and all that is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we're going to be continuing in a series that's within a series, the series of Exodus that we've been in for several months. And we've entitled it The Big Ten, also known as The Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue. Deca meaning ten, logos meaning word, the ten words of Moses. And, you know, there, <clears throat> you might be asking uh, this morning, why are you going to take ten weeks, why are you spending ten weeks to teach on a teaching that is archaic, and that is oppressive. People would say that about the Ten Commandments. They want them taken down and, uh, from our country, and, and we don't want to look at them because they, they no longer apply to us. That was from a different culture. But you know, the truth is, um, we are a, a, a church that, that don't believe that. We don't believe that the Ten Commandments are archaic or oppressive. As a matter of fact, we still contend that the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any double-edged sword, and uh, that it is applicable for all times, in all places, and for all cultures. We believe that the Word of God is just as relevant today as the day when it was first 
written down. And so we want to take the words of God that are relevant and profitable and teach them in light of what we know, the cross, in light of the gospel. And so if you remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Terry preached on the first uh, part of chapter 20, and he gave us three reasons that we should love and cherish the Ten Commandments. I'm going to go over them real quick. The first one is, is because they teach us about the heart of God, and that is that they teach us that God loves us. Secondly, the moral law restrains and protects us from sin. It protects us from sinning against one another if we will obey it, and it also protects us from dishonoring God. And the third thing that the Ten Commandments do, is, and what they were meant to do, is to show us that we are sinners. They were never meant for us to try to obey in our strength so that God would, oh, look at how good they are. I love them. No, they were rather given to us to show us that we can't do what God requires of us and that we would actually give up and trust Jesus as the one that fulfilled all 10 of the commandments, all of the law. Uh, He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. So the reason that we're going over the 10 commandments and spending 10 weeks on this is because we believe that the 10 commandments reveal God's glory and God's glory is for our good. So the first commandment that Pastor Terry brought to us two weeks ago was worship God only or have no other gods before me. This commandment in a nutshell is saying, do not, don't worship the wrong God. You know, you're going to worship something, but make sure when you're worshiping, it's the true God, the God of Israel, the God of creation. Um, And one thing that's uh, very important for us to understand is that Everything, all the other nine commandments are built upon this one law. If there was a way that we could obey this perfectly, we would not disobey the other nine. If we could obey it, we would keep them. But if you break the first one, and we all have, we've broken the rest of them. So this is the first one. If we will just worship God, everything else will fall into place. The second commandment that we're going to look at today is worship only God the right way. Worship God the right way. Uh, don't worship, worship him correctly, uh, don't worship him the wrong way. And this morning, uh, I want to answer three questions that, that come up in this passage. Number one is this, why does God say don't um, make carved images or no graven images? Secondly, and here's a question that people ask when they read this passage, why is God a jealous God? That just doesn't sound right to say that God is a jealous God. And the third thing is, are we responsible for the sins of our fathers? In other words, is is the sins that our fathers commit, are they passed upon us and we will experience generational curses because of what our fathers did? Are we we hopeless, in other words? So we're going to look at those three questions uh, throughout the passage. I'm going to just let you know that the, the majority of our time is going to be in the first one. So um, once I get finished with the first one, don't think that the rest of them are just as long. Uh, we will continue to move through this passage. But um, let's start with why does God say no graven images? And in order to do that, let's look at verse 4. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved or graven image, or any likeness 
of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And basically what he's saying is don't make anything, an image, uh, anything that's carved uh, or created that you see in creation. And the question that's going to arise from this is, is this saying that, uh, is this prohibiting the expression of art through sculptures and paintings? In other words, are statues and monuments for, for Christians, should we not ever make those? Um, should we avoid museums like the, the Smithsonian, where artwork and sculptures of humans and animals exist? What about images like baby dolls and action hero figures? Should we avoid those and not give those to our children? Are we teaching our children to be idolaters by giving them to them? Or what about pictures and statues of Jesus? Is this forbidding that? How about pictures of God the Father and the Holy Spirit? Well, I think in order to answer those types of questions, we need to understand that verse uh, 4, the key to verse 4, is actually verse 5. It says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So I don't think that this verse is prohibiting us creating art. He put that in us to create art. Um, also, in the, later on in the book of, of uh, Exodus, God is going to tell them to make images of, of cherubim or uh, angels and put them on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Also, later on in the desert, he tells them to, to fashion a serpent and put it up on a, the top of a pole to be healed from snake bites. So God isn't totally saying don't. Uh, it's not about the objects. It's what you do with those objects. It's also important to note that this passage is not primarily about us avoiding worshiping pagan gods. That was already addressed in the first commandment. Uh, J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, if this commandment stood alone we might be led to believe it refers to the worship of images of gods other than Jehovah. But God already dealt with that prohibition in the first commandment. And so instead of being redundant, what he's doing is he's bringing more clarity to the first commandment. What God is saying in the second commandment is, well, in the first commandment, he's saying, worship me. Just worship me, but don't worship me like this. He's, he's saying, I am the creator. I am not created. And so when you worship me, do not create anything from your imagination of what you think I'm like or from what you see around here. Don't create something and put it before you in order to, number one, represent me. Don't put an image in front of you to help you worship me. And secondly, uh, uh, or that will aid you to worship me. So here's an, here's an example. We have a cross back here. You could bow down in front of a cross and say, this really helps me to worship. I would be very careful about doing something like that. This is not something that God wants us to do. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And what the, the second commandment reveals to us is that we as humans, uh, fallen humans, we have a desire to walk by sight instead of faith. 
We want a, a God that we can see and that we can touch. Uh, we also want a, a God that is created, that we had something to do with. There's something in us that wants to know that we had a part in it. Um, or a God that we can relate to, or a God that we can control, that we can keep within boundaries, um, a God uh, that's like us. We want to walk by sight instead of faith. And a great example, or maybe it's a bad example of this, is found in Exodus chapter 32. A few chapters later on in the book of Exodus, Moses is up on the top of Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, and he's gone for a while, and what, hap- what do the people do? They get antsy. And they're like, where is he? He's probably not coming back. He's probably dead. Uh, So they come to Aaron. They say, we want you to make us a God that brought us out of Egypt. And so what does Aaron do? He listens to them. He takes their gold. And it says that he he takes a a graving tool. Okay, he's going to disobey the commandment right now. He takes a graving tool and he fashions it into a golden calf. As I was studying this, it was pointed out that this was probably a bull calf. It was meant probably by Aaron to represent the God, the power of the God who had brought them out of Egypt. So that's why he says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then he says uh, something that's very um, um, preposterous. He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so this is an example of how we as humans can easily settle for a lesser God than the true God. We want to see with our eyes the God who cannot be seen with eyes. And that's what is called idolatry. It's important to understand what idolatry is, and the Heidelberg Catechism says that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Okay, so according to this definition, an idol can be something minus God. Something minus God, something that you move God out of the way and you put that in front of you. Now, as believers in Christ, as disciples of Jesus, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, I'm not so concerned that you're, we're going to go that to that extent, that we're going to say, you know, we don't believe in Jesus. If you do that, you've, you know that you've totally forsaken the faith. The one that I'm concerned about is the something plus, uh, God plus something, alongside of God. We can do that. And this is something that can be very subtle. It's something that we need to guard ourselves against because, listen, when you add to God and the gospel, you cease to worship the true and living God. We need to understand that. God is very serious about that. J.C. Ryle says, you may spoil the gospel by addition. That is God plus something. You have only to add to Christ, the grand object of faith, some other objects as equally worthy of honor, and the mischief is done. Add anything to Christ, and the gospel ceases to be a pure gospel. 
do this either directly or indirectly, and your religion ceases to be evangelical. God plus something is idolatry. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Is God enough? Is God enough? Um, for example, when we gather here in, on Sunday mornings, is God enough for us? Is the preaching of his word, praising God, is that enough? Or is it God plus something else? God plus good music? God plus creativity? God plus some good jokes? God plus um, creativity? God plus feelings like oh when i feel that i'm that i'm uh that they're right then, then it's true god plus you put in the blank what well, is there anything that it has to be in order for you to worship god i don't know if you're familiar of the last verse in first john chapter 5 verse 21 but it's a verse that always i've always been like what in the why does he end like that it says this little children Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. If you read before that, he's talking about Jesus and how he's the only way. And then he says, keep yourselves from idols. He was talking to the church. Why was he talking to the church? Because, again, idolatry can be very subtle in our midst. And we have to be on guard for that. And I'm going to go just give a few uh, idols that I, myself, can be tempted by, and maybe you can relate to them. Um, number one is the idol of selfish ambition. The idol of selfish ambition. And that, this one can hide itself so well because you're like, I'm so busy for the Lord. I, I want to serve the Lord. Um, but maybe it's in my heart, I'm like, I'm trying to get God to help me to accomplish my goals. You know, use God instead of giving him my life and saying, do with it as you will. I'm saying, here's what I want to do, and I need you to help me to get to my dreams. Or if, if in, the, in the midst of my ambition, I'm not recognized rightly, or I don't feel loved, I don't feel respected, I don't feel appreciated. If I feel those things, guess what? I know I'm really in ministry. <laughs> Only a few people must be in ministry in here. Because if you go into ministry, Caleb, if you move down here to get all these things, well, we're gonna, we will appreciate you. But a lot of times when we serve, we are not appreciated. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus wasn't. When he came here, he was not appreciated. They put him to death. We put him to death. Second one that I, uh, that I want us to be aware of is the idol of comfort. The idol of purpose personal comfort. I can worship God as long as I'm comfortable, um, as long as it doesn't really, you know, cost me anything. Uh, it doesn't cost me my time. It doesn't cost me my energy. Uh, as long as the pastor doesn't talk about money, um, I, can, I can feel pretty comfortable, and I can serve that God. I can serve a God when it's convenient, Third one would be the idol of conditions. Now, if the conditions are right, if you meet my conditions, Lord, then I can worship you. Uh, if you heal my loved one. Um, I don't know how many times I've counseled people that 
have been going through a hard patch in life and um, we're, we're, it seems like we're gaining ground on something and they're want, there's something in their life that's been destroyed, whether it's their marriage, or a child, or something's going on in their life. And it comes very clear that God's not going to bring that marriage back or heal that situation. It's not necessarily it's God's fault. It's that the, the other person doesn't want to respond to the grace of God. And I have seen people walk away from God because of the condition that they had for God was an idol and it was not met. So we need to be careful of putting conditions on God. I will praise you, Lord, after I get accepted to the school of my choice, or I will, I will serve you and worship you after I get that family that I've always wanted or the dream job or whatever it is that you put that condition on. And the last one I want to look at is the idol of good doctrine. Now, you might be thinking, I thought you're supposed to have good doctrine. Well, we, that we talk about this a lot. We want to be a, a church that has good doctrine. We want to be biblically rooted. We don't want to be a, a church that says, you know, just love Jesus. Just love, I don't, I don't want doctrine, I, I just want to love Jesus. Well, good doctrine teaches us who the Jesus is that we serve and that we love. But we've got to be careful that we don't confuse being able to recite and parrot creeds and Bible verses. We don't confuse that with knowing God. You know, good doctrine is not God. Uh, this right here is not God. God is not contained all in here. Now, some of what the truth about him, and this is meant to lead us to God and have a clearer view of who he is. But you can be, and I, this is me, you can quote verses and say all the right things, but it's not really, it's up here. It's not gotten down into here. And until it goes from here, from the, the head, which it needs to be there, we need to have good doctrine up here, but it's got to be penetrate down to here because why? It comes back out. It produces good doctrine until it gets to the heart will not produce the life that God has for us, the expression of, of love through Christ. And if it's only up here and you're talking and your life doesn't match it, it's, it's like uh, fingernails grating on a chalkboard. It's just noise. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 13 that it, it's like a, a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You can speak all, know all the wisdom, but if you have not love, it's worthless. And so good doctrine that doesn't produce good fruit is dead religion. And we need to be aware of that and uh, guard ourselves against that type of idol. And as I've been meditating on this commandment, I have come to realize that one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that God forbids any images for us to put any type of image before us in order to help aid us in worshiping him is because unlike us and because unlike creation, God is infinite. Have you ever thought about what it means to be infinite? You want to blow your mind? Just sit and think about infinite. Now, we can't really get this. I love, actually, I'm going to read what A.W. Tozer says about this uh, in his book, The Attributes of God. It's the first chapter in there, and I'm just going to read part of it. He says, God is infinite. That's the hardest thought I will ask you to grasp. 
You cannot understand what infinite means, but don't let it bother you. I don't understand it, and I'm trying to explain it. When we talk about infinite, we mean by infinite that God knows, here it is, here's what it means to be infinite. No limits, no bounds, and no end. What God is, he is without boundaries. All that God is, he is without bounds or limits. And then he says, we've got to eliminate all careless speech. You and I talk about unlimited wealth, but there's no such thing. You can count it. We talk about boundless energy, but there's no such thing. You can measure a man's energy. We say an artist takes infinite pains with his picture, but he doesn't take infinite pains. He just does the best he can and throws up his hands and says, it isn't right yet, but I'll have to let it go. That's what we call infinite pains. But that is a misuse of the words boundless, unlimited, and infinite. These words describe God. They don't describe anything but God. They do not describe space or time or matter or motion or energy. These words do not, do not apply to creatures or sand or stars or anything that can be measured. There is nothing boundless but God and nothing infinite but God. It is only God who knows no degrees. I love that. God is infinite. Um, in other words, he's outside of his creation. And so creating something or attaching something that's finite, trying to attach something that's finite to an infinite, God is like, uh, like a picture or a statue to help you to worship God. It diminishes in our minds who he really is. And so that's where we would not want, we, we would not want to, to try to draw pictures. I would say we would not want to try to draw pictures of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, uh, it's diminishing who he really is. Um, now, should we, should we have pictures of Jesus in our children's books and, and that sort of thing? I would say um, we need to be careful about that. I'm not going to say that, the, that we should prohibit it because he came in the flesh. We can relate to that, and we should relate to him as, as he was a man. But we have to be careful that we don't put pictures in front of us to help us to, to experience who Christ really is. That's not, uh, he's, uh, Paul says he's not regarded in the flesh in, anymore anyway. So that's, we're, we're worshiping, uh, we, we, we want to worship Jesus, but we, we don't want to put something in front of us to help us to worship Jesus, if that makes sense. So how do we avoid worshiping false images of God. What is our part? Well, I would say that the primary way to do it is by meditating on God's word, what he has revealed to us about himself in his words. And you know, um, I'm sure that everybody is familiar with what's going on in Ukraine, um, all that's happening there. After the service, after I, I tell the church, you know, you are sent, um, Lilia wants to, for us to come and pray for her. She's going to be going to Poland to help minister to, the, to them. But we'll be, we'll be praying for her here in the front. But as I was thinking about them, I've been praying for Ukraine like most of you have, many of you have. And one of the prayers I'm praying for them is for the believers there. Um, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters because this is a great opportunity. 
Um, this is a great opportunity for the gospel to be spread uh, through that land. And, and there's no telling what God's already doing in there. Um, but one of the things I was uh, thinking about is if our borders were being surrounded and we were about to be taken over, how would we be responding? Just think back to 9-11, those of us who were alive, and, and remember two plane, or two or three planes that crashed into a building and into the Pentagon, and I, can't, I think in, into a field, shook up the entire nation, right? If we were invaded, what would be happening? Well, the churches were filled for a season because there were fear. There was a fear. We need a, someone that can help us, our God. And so here's what I've been praying. What I've been praying for the Ukraine is that they would see, their, the, the believers there would see their infinite God, Right? that they would see their infinite God. Because if you see God for who he is, you're not afraid of anything. And what I want to do is I want to look at, I want to do what I just said. I want to I read through uh, a little bit of uh, Isaiah 40. And as I'm reading, I want you to listen to who our God is, what he proclaims, who he proclaims himself to be. And if we will get this, it will give us confidence in wherever he has us. So verse 15, I'm just going to pick up in verse 15. It says, behold, I love this part. It says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. He's saying all the nations, all the armies, all the kings are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as, as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. Now, I want to stop here and just make sure you understand. He's not saying, they don't mean anything to me. What he's saying is that, that he's not threatened by them, okay? They're valuable to him. He died for them just as he died for us. So, but he's saying that they are nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman cast it, casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it, its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. In other words, something that can't save them. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting the Lord is the eternal, the Lord is the infinite God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's eternal. It's infinite. 
He gives power to the faint. Now, this is good news to us, church. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God has no rivals. And so it just reminds me, if God is for us, and he is, those of us that are in Christ know that. And he's for those who are not, that they would come to him If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, some will ask, if God is so awesome and mighty like you're talking about, then why is he a jealous God? Why is this passage says that in verse 5, that I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God? Why does an infinite, all-powerful God fall to a petty human emotion like jealousy? I mean, isn't jealousy bad? Isn't jealousy sinful? We shouldn't be jealous, right? And there is a sinful type of jealousy. Um, For example, if somebody has something that you don't have, that you wish you had, maybe um, they're more talented than you, or maybe they're more physically beautiful, or maybe um, they have uh, more money than you and resources, this can tempt you to be sinfully jealous of that person. Oprah Winfrey says that the reason that she walked away, she used to be uh, professed to be a Christian. She says the reason she walked away was because one time she was in a sermon up in New York and she heard the pastor preaching and telling that God is a jealous God. And she said, something in my spirit just didn't feel right about that. And she said, if God can be jealous of me, then he can't be God. And I'm just like, no, that's not what That's not what it's saying. Um, He's not jealous of you. He's not jealous of me. He's not jealous of anyone. Um, We just read how awesome he is. He created everything. What, What can we give to him? What would he be jealous of? So he's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. We need to understand that. He's jealous for us. Now, Pastor Terry talked about this a couple weeks ago. He said that basically when God is glorified, in our lives, we benefit. When, when, we, when God is glorified in our lives, we benefit from it. And so when we violate the second commandment and try to add to God, God's glory is diminished in our lives. And so we're hurt by that. And God is jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his people because he wants what's best for his people. Jealous for his glory and our well-being and our joy. That's what it means when it says that God is jealous. He wants his glory to be seen so that we can benefit from that. Well, The last question I want to answer this morning is this. Are we responsible for the sins of our fathers? Um, the verse says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on This is the second part of verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Is this teaching uh, that God holds children and future generations responsible for the sins of their parents? Um, are they, in other words, are they doomed to be punished unfairly because of the sins of their fathers and grandfathers? Now, I would say that this, this is, we need to be, we need to understand that obviously if, if your father was doing something sinful and you realize, oh, he taught me something sinful, we need to repent of that and turn from that. But am I, am I going to be cursed because of his sin, of what, what he has done? And I would say that the answer is no. And God, this was, would have been a, uh, a thought that was, that was back then. And God corrects this in Ezekiel chapter 18. He says, now, suppose a man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. But he withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest to profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for the father's iniquity. He shall surely live. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. And I love verse 23, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? What's the answer to that? Does God enjoy uh, putting to death the wicked? No, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God wants everyone to return to him. He doesn't take any pleasure in, in destroying uh, or punishing or um, putting, excluding anyone from his kingdom. And that's good news for all of us, isn't it? Uh, this passage is not teaching that children are unjustly punished. Let's look at it one more time. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Look at that. For who? Those who hate me. Those who continue in the sins of their father. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Those, who, uh, those descendants who walk in the sins of their fathers will share in their forefathers' punishments. And those who turn from the sins of their fathers and return to God will experience his forgiveness and steadfast love. That was good news back then, and that was, that's good news today. And, um, you know, one of the biggest idols, and I'm going to close on this, you know what one of the biggest idols is that I didn't mention earlier? Is me. I'm one of the biggest idols in my life. And what I mean by that is I like to want to take the work of my hands along with God's and kind of try to combine them. And when I do that, uh, it's, it doesn't really show the glory of God. It, it diminishes it. But you know what the good news is, is that when I realize I'm doing that, I can repent, confess it, and turn to him. And one of the most blessed things that we get to do every week is that we get to share what we call the Lord's Supper together. Because this is a reminder to us that Jesus did for us what we could not do. He kept all 10 of the commandments. He perfectly glorified God with his life. 
He had no great graven images before him, and he loved us uh, perfectly. And so whenever we realize that there are idols in our lives, the first thing that we should do is, is acknowledge it. God, I'm putting this before you. I acknowledge this. Thank you, and then thank him. Thank you for showing that to me. If you're feeling convicted about something, thank God that he's doing that. Because good, uh, there's a healthy conviction. Because what it means is that God's calling you back to himself when you feel that conviction. So this morning, uh, we get to remember what Christ did for us. Remember that uh, there's, a, there's um, a cracker in here, which represents the body of Christ. Christ's body was crushed because of our sin. And then there's juice in here that represents the blood of Christ, which was poured out for our sins. And so this morning, uh, wherever you're at, whatever God has shown you in your life, is there some, an area in your life you're, you're like, you know what, that's a graven image in my life. No, I haven't put it right in front of me, but it's up in my head, and I'm going for it, trying to be alongside of God. If, there, if God's dealing with you that, with that this morning, I want to encourage you to confess that and repent of it and accept Christ's forgiveness for it. And then if you're in Christ to come to the table, uh, come to the table and take it back with you to your seat. And when you're in a place where you uh, want to, just take the bread where you're sitting and the juice. This is a great time to reflect on your life and uh, to make corrections by allowing God to remind you how much he loves you, and then he will empower you to do what he's commanded.